0: Buddha says if your mouth is open, you're not listening. Celeste Hadley agrees. She says that listening is the most important thing you can do to have better communications with the people in your life. She quotes Bill Nye, the science guy, who said, everybody you've ever met knows something you don't. A journalist, public speaker, and co-host of the weekly series Retro Report on PBS, Celeste has had a 20-year career in public radio. Her TED Talk about conversations is one of the top 10 most watched of all time. She's the author of four books, including We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, and her book Do Nothing, How to Break Away from Overworking, Overdoing, and Underliving. Communication is our superpower and the only reason, according to Celeste, that the human species is still standing. When you mess with one homo sapien, you're almost always messing with more. We're not lone wolves. Lone wolves die of mange. We have minds, and that's how we do our best work. Celeste Hadley teaches us how to stop hiding behind emails, texts, data, and stats, and start having better, more impactful conversations with each other. Let's get started, Celeste. Hello, uh, thank you hello. for being here with us. It's my pleasure. This is obviously audio, but if you're seeing video, you would recognize Celeste from a lot of things. So I've known of her because I've lived in Atlanta for 25 years, and there was a period of time when Celeste was in Atlanta at GPB, which is a Georgia Public Broadcasting, and then NPR, our local. So w, WABE, correct?
1: Uh, I was at I was working at GPB, but. You know, the show was heard all
0: over. Yeah, on all, all different NBR. Are. Yeah. Yeah. And now you're back in Washington, D.C. That's correct. And you've done a couple of TED Talks, one in Athens and then one in Savannah. And the one I think where I, I've seen you several different times pop up on my LinkedIn feed and on just being on YouTube, but you have a video about conversations that really has had an amazing reach.
1: And I, yeah, it's one one of the top 10 of all time, most watched.
0: Because of that, I guess that's probably, you probably get asked to do interviews constantly because of that, don't you?
1: I, I do. Um, <laughs> that launched my first book. So now I have three, three and a half books out. And so, yes, I get asked to do speeches and workshops all the time.
0: Well, I'm gonna try to be a good conversationalist and a decent communicator here because you are the master of that and that's what we wanna talk about here today. And I'm gonna start with seven questions before I get into my actual questions for you. And this is like a warm up, Okay. And the first one is, I did not make these for you. This is the same seven I'll ask many of our guests. Even though these actually very much relate to you, I didn't make these up for you. So the first one is, what is your favorite song to sing?
1: Um, to song to sing. I guess I'd have to go with the one that I sing if I'm ever forced to do karaoke, which is "All the Man I Need" Whitney Houston tune.
0: Whoa! Um,
1: but other than that, maybe "Blue Bayou."
0: Oh, that's pretty. That's pretty. And Whitney Houston song is very um. That's a scary one to have to be able to do. Like you got to follow Whitney, right?
1: Right. Yeah, it, but I'm a really good singer,
0: <laughs> so I, I know you have a ma- Works out. You have a masters in in vocal, is that right?
1: Yeah, I have a bachelor's and master's both in vocal performance. So, I mean, when you ask me my favorite song to sing, I'm leaving out all the opera repertoire okay. and just going straight to the pop tunes.
0: Our listeners yeah. want to hear what you would sing at karaoke, so that's good.
1: Yeah, that's what I figured.
0: Uh, yeah. Favorite core pursuit. So core pursuits here on the Retire Suitor podcast are really like a hobby on steroids, It's so really some of the most fun things you do.
1: So that one's also actually pretty easy for me. I throw parties. I'm the person in the neighborhood that throws the parties and I say throw the same four parties every year I there's about one every three months um I throw party gras then I throw midsummer night's drink then I throw cheers for fears for Halloween and then Luda Christmas in the holidays um and I am extra about it like I am I am evangelistic about uh throwing parties
0: that is the, I've never heard that before but that is so cool is Luda Christmas?
1: ludicrous yeah like Ludicrous the rapper so the theme is like early 2000s hip-hop
0: that's great yeah well all right I love that Ludicrous he's at La- an Atlanta guy so he's, he's yeah isn't he, he is. okay so Ludicrous he is absolutely I, I feel like I'm gonna have to step up my party game after that Mar- party Gras <laughs> that's awesome how many people come to these by the way
1: it's obviously the numbers are down since the pandemic um, I think our my largest number was around forty people. I don't have a huge house, so I think somewhere around forty people. If I had a bigger house, I yeah, I'd make you'd have it more bigger. people.
0: See, yeah. I think that I like the idea of every quarter having a party to look forward to. I've actually t- yeah, yeah, see, I, I love that idea. Number it
1: helps you. It's like tent poles for the year.
0: Yes, it is. Right? I love that. It's like having four good trips to go on in any given year. You're always looking forward to it. Exactly. Okay. What is your favorite instrument?
1: You mean like a musical instrument? Yes. Uh, So I played oboe for years and years and years. I mean, I still play piano badly, but uh, probably oboe.
0: All right. Again, another first here on Retire Sooner Podcast. Favorite book, but I'm going to say the favorite of your books.
1: The favorite of my books um, would probably be my most recent one, Speaking of Race. Uh, It was the hardest one to write, but I think it's the best written. It's the best writing I think I've ever done.
0: How long did it take?
1: That was on on a relatively short schedule. Luckily, it was something I'd been researching for at least a decade. Um, So by the time I got around to writing the book, I think I had like eight months to write it. Yeah, it was a very, very short deadline.
0: Yeah, eight so. months is an amazing amount. I think it took me eight months just to edit the last book that I did. It took forever. It's
1: writing a book is a lot. It is. There's a reason not everybody does that. Yeah.
0: yeah. And do you feel like you can be done writing books, or do you feel like you're still going to have to write a few more?
1: I I still have at least a couple in me. I'm currently working on one that's going to take me quite a long time to write. It's a it's one that takes a lot of like original document research. It's about my great grandmother who was born on a slave plantation in Georgia and ended up having her life history read into the congressional record. She started the first library for black people in Arkansas, and she did all this amazing stuff. So it's it's about her.
0: So how did it end up in the congressional record? It's amazing.
1: Her life story? Yeah. I'm not entirely sure. I don't know how that pro- process goes, but... It's it's there. She was a a fierce, amazing woman and I think a lot of people don't know about the the movement, the the passionate movement among black women just after the civil war to increase literacy among blacks in America and just the unbelievably powerful and brave women of that time, black women of that time who made waves like gravitational waves they were so strong in the culture, the broader culture of the United States. I mean, I feel like that's a history that's been really lost.
0: It has been lost. So it is, you're right. That's your, You have to write that book. You have to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with
0: you. So you've got a couple more in you. Yeah. All right. Uh, favorite, switching gears, favorite athlete or favorite sport?
1: Oh, that one's a hard one. I mean, they're two different... Things?
0: You can choose whatever question's easier.
1: Okay, so my favorite athlete is Barry Sanders. Ooh. Um, who? I mean, I I'm gonna I would make the argument that he's the best running back of all time.
0: So would my ten year old, um, by the way.
1: Mostly because thinking about what he was capable of doing with the Detroit Lions team, if you can imagine placing him on any other team, I mean.
0: Yeah. That's an awesome argument. He's I think he's the most fun guy to ever watch. He's, he's the most he's just classy he's fun to watch. Classy, yeah. cool. I mean
1: just he, a standard. He never dude. got did he
0: never got a Super Bowl ring, did he?
1: He never did, and yet he still stayed in Detroit. He knew perfectly well that any team would take him. Yeah. But he loved his city and Detroit is my favorite city. Um, so probably Barry Sanders. Yeah.
0: Unlike Matthew Stafford, who left to go join a better franchise quote do people notice i guess does everybody know did you know what i'm talking about the matthew stafford he went to georgia he was the lions quarterback forever never won and went to the rams and won the super bowl but verizon or at and did a commercial with him and it was this hearken to i feel bad for leaving detroit but can i my, do, you, do you remember this commercial I do not okay, remember we'll it,
1: but you out. know, he should feel bad because <laughs> he was sucking wind in Detroit. He was screwing up. He was making errors and that team stood by him and they kept saying, no, we're convinced he's got the stuff in him. We know he's going to grow into this role. And then finally he did. And he was like, see ya. Well,
0: so, okay. you know. he landed in an AT&T commercial. All right. Favorite place you've traveled in Michigan. In Michigan?
1: Uh, My favorite place I've traveled in Michigan. That is, Hmm. by the
0: way, a question I ask everybody on the show, not just because you went to U of M.
1: I mean, probably the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island. Oh, of
0: course. Yeah, that's really a special place.
1: It really is an incredibly special place. And it's just set up to create like the best memories of your life, right? It is. <laughs> so, yeah, probably there. Celeste was talking so- Esther Williams Pool.
0: Is Celeste is talking about this little island Mackinac Island that you can drive you can drive across on the Mackinac Bridge or take a ferry and it's going back in time. There's no cars. It's only horse and a lot of ho- horsemen manure. bikes. A lot a lot of, of horsemen manure in the streets, but it's bikes, it's horse and carriage and buggy and the Grand Hotel is, I don't know, built in, I don't know, eight, 19, in the early 1900s and is just a phenomenal place. I
1: guess largest porch, longest porch in the world. Mm-hmm. It's a historic landmark. Yeah.
0: And it's nice and cool in the summer. So
1: It is very cool. That's where Lovely I go, by breezes. the way, that, that's
0: where I go in the summer, Celeste, and that's why I asked that question. So under, it's the most oh, underrated. See, there you go. I Lucky think Lucky you. Michigan is a kind of the most underrated state in the nation.
1: Oh, absolutely. It, there are so many places to go. You know, there's a huge swamp right in the middle of the state, right? What's the swamp now? Well, uh, it, like a lot of people who live there don't even realize that the middle of the state is a big swamp.
0: Well that doesn't sound are you trying to make it so people it's don't like go to It's like a huge wetland.
1: the dead there's the Dead Stream Swamp, there's the Huron Swamp. No, it's a whole huge nature sanctuary that's a there's a gigantic nature preserve like it's beautiful and pristine and the Lakeville um nature sanctuary is up near the Thumb. Um the Huron Swamp is right in the middle and it extends all the way through the the core of Michigan until you get up to Tamarack Swamp. I mean, I guess swamp isn't a very good no. word, but it's beautiful. I mean, it's just filled with wildlife and wetland, protected wetlands. And yeah, it's gorgeous. <laughs> I,
0: th- I think of a license plate. I don't know if it's Michigan or Wisconsin or Minnesota, the la- land of 10,000 lakes. Can you imagine on a license plate? They just put swampland. <laughs> Lots of swamps. <laughs> swampland. <laughs> which which borderline is tundra in the middle of the winter. All right. And then lastly, favorite place to go unbridled in the world.
1: Um, so, I mean, I have to say Detroit. Like people uh, tease me for it all the time, but like when I have a chance to, to go somewhere on vacation, I go to Detroit. Like it's my favorite city in the whole world.
0: Wow. Will you end up living there one day, do you think?
1: I hope so. I mean, that would be awesome yeah
0: i I would love to And is that because you went are you i know you went to u of m but where did the love for detroit come from
1: so after i graduated from u of m i I went back to arizona for just a, a year or two but then i was i i returned to michigan and that's where i started my career at npr i started at wdet it's where my son it's my son's hometown he was born at the u of m hospital and we were there for over a decade um i was the midwest correspondent for npr for quite some time Um, years and years it's where I bought my first house it's uh you know it's my it's my heart
0: again another first on retire sooner podcast I'll never forget going to loading up bags at a delta sky cap in Atlanta about I don't know 10 years ago and he goes where are you going and we said I'm going to grand flying to grand rapids he goes oof
1: what is that? He goes, ooh. These are people who haven't been there. Like, what, These are people who have not been there. Do you
0: know what the water is like in northern Michigan in the summer?
1: There is so much. We're talking about the place that has the largest free jazz festival in the world, the largest free techno festival in the world, the largest free country music festival in the world. They've got Greenfield Village, um, the largest outdoor museum in the world. I mean, they have the Detroit Institute of Arts has the sixth best collection of art. In the world, the Detroit Science Center, which is phenomenal, the Detroit Zoo, which is where they a lot of other zoos send endangered species, so that the Detroit Zoo can take care of them. I mean, it is
0: awesome. Celeste Hadley, pure Michigan. I think you absolutely you're going to end up a spokesperson for the state. All right, I would be happy to. Let, let's go. To the, I want to talk about your specialty here. You're a journalist. You're a communicator for a living. If you haven't seen your TED Talk. You'll you'll see it online at some point twenty seven million plus views and and I wish you could get a dollar per view but I, I will start to that too. <laughs> are we bad communicators? And if are we why are we such why are we such bad communicators?
1: So there has to be some caveats here, um, which is that human beings Homo sapiens are the best communicators in the world. Like that is the one thing that has actually lifted our species. Throughout evolution, like for a lot of times, we thought it was our intellect and our brains. That's actually not true. We are very, very prone to to logical fallacies and we're emotional thinkers. We're not logical thinkers. But the thing that has saved us, the thing that made Homo sapiens survive of all the different human species was our communication skills. So in one sense, we are the best communicators. We can do it better than anyone else. The problem is, is that we've stopped doing this thing that we are the best at. We literally are just phenomenal. This is, you know, this is like Michael Jordan deciding to play baseball, right? This is like, we're so phenomenal at this one thing. And we're like, nah, I'm going to do something else, which is written text. Written text is, has only been around very, very short period of time in our evolution. We are not evolved to communicate this way. And so we choose over and over to send an email rather than call someone on the phone. And so, yeah, right now we're not very good communicators. Like the number one cause of project failure in the workplace is miscommunication. The number one cause of miscommunication is overuse of email. So there are a lot of other things causing our communication in recent years to go down the toilet, but that's one of them.
0: I don't know if I've ever heard anybody talk that through and it, ma- it does make sense. It's almost as though you can hide behind an email and you can, you can almost, it's almost like a procrastination of real communication. Well, I can send an email. So I really, that way I don't have to talk. And so you, you- yeah, but that's a delusion,
1: right? This idea that the email is a replacement for that phone call is a complete delusion. And let me give you an example. You know, the process of going from I'm sorry all the way to you're forgiven and we can move on. That process emotionally and neurologically is quite complicated. But it all begins right here. If people can see the video, just take your right finger, put it at the top of your right ear, move it up about an inch and move it back just about an inch. That's your right temporal parietal junction in the, in the brain. That part of your brain has to be engaged in order for that process to really get going. That's the center for, you know, simplistically, that's the center of your empathy and your self-control, etc. We know because we have now the fMRI, the Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging Machine, which allows us to watch people's brains while they're conscious. We know that when someone reads an apology, even if it's handwritten, that this part of the brain is never engaged, which means... You never go through that process that leads to forgiveness and moving on.
0: The receiver, not the reader. You're saying if I'm reading you an apology, you you understand that I'm just reading it and it doesn't work.
1: You're reading it. You've received the email that says, I'm sorry, right? I send you an email that says, I'm sorry, and you read it. Mm -hmm. You are both the receiver and the reader. Mm
0: -hmm. And and it doesn't work.
1: And does not work. It does almost nothing. Wow. And, and yet, when we say I'm sorry to someone in person or on the phone, the reason we avoid it is because it's hard.
0: So much we easier. It feel, is right. We can hide behind. We hide behind our Yeah,
1: it, we feel text. awkward. We don't know what to say. We're afraid someone's going to get mad at us. But the thing is, that other person hears that tension in our voice, the awkwardness in the voice. They see our face where we feel uncomfortable and suddenly, bing. This part of the brain lights up and the process can begin. The difficulty is what gives that apology value. And when we remove that difficulty, it has no value. And you can extrapolate this to pretty much any other form of, of communication. By taking out any of the discomfort or social awkwardness, we've also removed the meaning and the value.
0: I think about the medium of audio, right? the medium of radio and the medium of podcasts. If I had to choose a medium, I would still choose live radio. And I know you do a ton of radio, even over podcasting, because the connection with the audience is, a, I think, a di- is still a different level. Are we wired to receive audio more than anything? Or is it...
1: Yeah, absolutely. As opposed we to video, have been, right?
0: As opposed to... Yeah.
1: Well, even video. I mean, we... but But there is a special... Connection, empathic connection made when a human voice is heard by a set of human ears. We spent 300,000 years in change evolving that very specific skill, right? Like if you've ever called up a friend and they say hello and you say, what's wrong?
0: <laughs> you know, immediately, right? it is amazing.
1: Yeah, it's that, I mean, you've Think for a second about the incredibly sophisticated and nuanced information you have just received in a fraction of a second. We also there's a phenomenon called neural coupling, um, which comes out of research that was begun at Princeton, in which they would have somebody come in and tell a personal story. And in the original experiment, it was a young woman telling a story about her, her really tragic senior prom. And then they had a whole bunch of other people come in and listen to her telling the story. And this is amazing because what they found was that when people began to listen in an active way, when they clicked in and began to really listen to her, their brain waves began to sync up exactly with the brain waves of the young woman telling the story. Like exactly. In some cases, it was so exact that the listener's brain would anticipate changes in the speaker's brain by a fraction of a second.
0: Neural comp. Nor- neural. Neural. Com-
1: coupling which is really a fancy way of saying mind meld like there's no reason why the electrical impulses in somebody's brain should sync up with mine when we're not even in the same room but they do like that's as close to magic as we can get scientifically we can't really explain it and yet that is what happens that's the kind of empathic bond that's created there is no replacement for this analog instrument in my throat no replacement Wow.
0: So let's go through, you've got a list of of 10 ways to be a better communicator. And let's, let's just go through them. I I don't know if you want to go through all 10 of them, but I'll I'll preview a few of these. Don't multitask, which we're all guilty of. Don't pontificate, open-ended questions, go with the flow. Let's start with those. Don't multitask. And and are we mostly guilty of that just today because we have iPhones (laughs) or were we doing that back when it was only a, a typewriter?
1: Yeah, we, we've always been trying to multitask. And to be clear, if one of the tasks you're doing is mindless, like washing the dishes, fine. But that's not generally what we do. Generally, what we do is we get on a conference call and we have 14 other tabs open on our computer. Or uh, we are talking to like our, our a relative on the phone at the same time we're checking Twitter or Instagram or whatever. You can't do that. Like your brain can't do that. Now, I'm I want to repeat that because the vast majority of people believe they can multitask, even though literally the human brain cannot do that. The majority of people believe that they can. But here's the the thing. Number one, they have found that when you try to multitask, um, it drops your IQ by a lot, by like 12 or 14 points which for a, a, a gentleman like yourself means that you are you are suddenly on the same intellectual level with like a, a nine or 10-year-old kid.
0: Lynn would say um, I'm already starting there at a nine and 10-year-old kid.
1: Well, then you're really in trouble. <laughs> you're basically in utero. Um, then the other thing is that both of your tasks, the the quality of both tasks goes down by a lot. You are way more prone to errors. And... Your cortisol is going to shoot up. That's your stress hormone. You're going to feel stressed. You're going to be way more fatigued than if you had just done one thing at a time. The quality of your work is going to suck. And you're less compassionate. And here's the very last nail in this coffin, which is that scientific studies now seem to indicate that you, you're you doing damage to your brain.
0: By multitasking? Like
1: Yes, by trying to multitask over time, they have found that people who do that a lot, their brains shrink.
0: Holy, I we've got a lot of wide eyes here in the studio because we've got a bunch of multitaskers here and they're all very guilty. Good yeah, thing you've I don't do that. Stop it. I don't ever do any multitasking. That's a great thing. But look, <laughs> I, I feel like super very guilty of it too. Do we think we're doing okay with multitasking because we are rapidly going from one thing to the next, back and forth and back and forth? Are we actually doing two things at once? Badly.
1: No, we're not capable of it. So so we're actually
0: popping back and forth. I'm I'm reading Twitter, but I'm talking to my mom. Reading Twitter, talking about back and forth.
1: Right, your brain is just trying to switch back and forth as many times as it can. Yeah. It's been estimated that you lose up to 40% of your productive time to those switch costs, yeah. which is those fractions of seconds it takes you to switch back and forth. There are some species that can can truly multitask. A pigeon can truly multitask.
0: <laughs> How do you measure um, that?
1: We cannot.
0: Okay.
1: Um, so yeah there, there's a couple reasons why we keep doing it number one our our society keeps pressuring people to multitask people even put it in job descriptions a good we need a good multitasker no you don't unless a pigeon is what you're looking for um, another reason is that you do get a shot of dopamine when you're trying to multitask like you get this shot of pure pleasure of dopamine is the addiction hormone and it can make you continue to try to do it, right? Like dopamine is the, what you get when you pull a, the arm on a slot machine.
0: Why? So our body likes our brain seems to think we like to multitask. That's interesting.
1: It's no because look, there's many of other there's lots of other pleasure hormones, right? You can get a more lasting pleasure from say serotonin or oxytocin, the mommy's hug hormone. Dopamine is just that little shot of kind of adrenaline. It's gonna pump up your Essentially what's happening is you you're making your body think that it needs an extra shot of energy.
0: Because you're multitasking. It,
1: yeah. And so it's like, boom, here you go, here's a little shot. But when you're doing that all day long, by the end of the day, you're gonna feel crappy.
0: No wonder we're so damn tired in America.
1: Right? Tired all the time.
0: What does don't pontificate really mean?
1: It means Nobody cares means stop about your philosophy? Lecturing people. Yeah. No, nah, it means stop lecturing people. Stop telling people what you know. You know, people tend to do brain dumps, and they're like, "Oh, you mentioned immigration. I'm going to tell you everything I know and think about immigration." And so they opine. You got to stop trying to change people's minds or educate them, because neither of those things are are going to happen over the course of a conversation. And not only that, but you know this because you know how much you hate it. When somebody is sitting there trying to go, oh, let me tell you all, all all that I know about the things that you're doing wrong in your life, right? Like, you you hate it. Why would you think other people are enjoying that? Or even listening to you? They're tuning out.
0: So, no. <laughs> but at some point, when do we help influence or change people's minds, though? If, if I were advocating for the pontificators, you're right. Nobody wants to hear a lecture I don't want to hear one. I know that people shut out when I'm trying to do the same thing. But at some point, we've got to be able to educate each other. And this is... Do
1: we? So, you know, here's the thing. All of our research has shown that conversation is positive for you and raises your spirits in every situation except two. One, if the conversation is hostile or competitive in tone, understandably. And two, if the other person is trying to help you even if you've asked for the help. So even if you ask someone for advice, your brain reacts to them giving you advice defensively. It literally goes into defensive mode. So you have to find other ways to do that. And the way to do that, A, is stop trying to educate people. Instead, engage in an exchange between equals. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is that remember that people change iteratively over time. They don't change over the course of some like mind-blowing conversation. Right, right. So, you know, we underestimate the power of modeling. But human beings are really really prone to modeling their behavior based on someone else's behavior. One of the most powerful ways that you influences you can have on someone is honestly by living your best life. And they're going to model that behavior on what they see you doing, right? If you if you go to a job on your first day of a job and you're wearing a three-piece suit and you get there and everyone's in cargo shorts and Tevas, you are not showing up in that three-piece suit the next day. Like we very quickly adapt ourselves to the way other people behave. So we underestimate how much influence we have over people just through our own behavior.
0: Which maybe leads us to... As opposed to lecturing and and educating, we should be doing number three on your list, open-ended questions.
1: Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. um, Again, the the research that's been done on questions in and of themselves. You know, the most powerful question you can ask is a follow-up question. Questions are great and open-ended questions are really important because that's a who, what, where, when, why and how, right? That's a, a question that's generally brief. It's allowing the other person to ask exactly the way they want. You know, I always find it funny when people ask questions and then immediately answer it. They'll be like, "Hey, what time are you going to be home tonight?" Oh, probably not till after six because you got that one meeting. (laughs) Oh, no, wait, you said you need to be, you know, at that one place until six thirty, so probably like seven, right?
0: Thank you for asking for myself. For myself, Uh, thank you. I
1: know exactly. So we tend to not want to give over control of conversations, and questions are powerful partly because we are giving control over and saying hey tell me what's on your mind and the follow-up question has particular power there's a great uh piece on harvard in the harvard business review about this from a few years ago the research on follow-up questions but follow-up questions have a unique power to make someone feel heard when we ask follow-up questions they a feel that you are more likable and more friendly but they also feel heard
0: what's next in the conversation, kind of, I've heard you and I want to know more.
1: Yeah. And in order for me to ask a follow-up question, I had to have heard what you said.
0: So it's like proof that I'm actually listening.
1: Exactly.
0: So so then we go to the next piece of advice, which is go with the flow. And does this go back to, you've got good conversations unless they're either helpful, where we get defensive or hostile. Is that what go, what is go with the flow?
1: Actually go with the flow is, so there's, Okay, so there's our brains are constantly thinking they're constantly a monologue going inside your head. Right. And that messes with us in our conversations. It messes with us when we're trying to listen and it messes with us when they're trying to talk. So this is about the problems that arise when we're trying to listen. Someone is talking to you and they tell you a story. They say, oh, I I went to the grocery store. Right, exactly. Or, or I went to the grocery store and um, I couldn't believe it. They had milk for like $5 a gallon. And you start going, oh, wait, what, what did I pay for milk the last time I bought it? When was the last time I bought milk? And you start thinking of this whole thing. And then you suddenly remember the story about this time that you bought milk and then you dropped it in the parking lot and it went everywhere. And it's this hilarious story that you've told 10,000 times. But by this point, you aren't hearing a damn thing they're saying anymore. You have gotten caught up in this monologue inside your head. So go with the flow means you need to let those thoughts flow into your brain and then flow right back out and then get back to the flow of the conversation itself.
0: But not go to, when you say flow back out, when I originally read that, I thought what you were trying to say is that if I have a thought in my head, get it out and talk about it. But you're just saying, let it go away. Let it come in and get rid of it. Yep,
1: your brain is supplying with information. That's tr- that it's trying to. It's like that. There's an archive librarian in there, right? Sift, constantly sift through the files, trying to give you information that gives you context and helps you understand what you're hearing, right? Somebody says, "Oh, I had a a, a dish that had too many onions in it," and your brain is going to be like, "Okay, taste of onions, taste of onions, taste <laughs> of onions," and it's supplying you with this information, right? That's for you. That's not for the other person. That's for your benefit. So it's okay to let those thoughts come in and let them go straight back out and return to listening.
0: By the way, you're not so far off on milk. Average gallon of organic milk right now in the United States is about $4.50.
1: Oh, that is expensive. It's
0: not It's not a whole lot different than gasoline. It's about the same price for gasoline. Milk and gasoline That's are about the same. That's crazy. And unless you're in California, yes. where... Gasoline, $6.50. And I would imagine milk's probably around the same as well. I'd like, we need to chart milk and gasoline. Uh, See, my mind was going some other economic number, but I should have gone with the flow. All right, if you don't know, say you don't know. This one, I've gone through phases where I'm really proud of saying, I just don't know. And then sometimes, almost out of guilt, I feel like I, I wanna, if somebody says, oh, you know this, right? I was like, yeah, oh yeah, I know that. Almost like I want to say, sure, I know that. And it's almost an ease of conversation as opposed to, no, I have no idea. And then you explain what it is. Tell me about the. just saying you don't know. So this is
1: especially difficult uh, in modern times because of the Google effect, which is people believe that they can do a quick search on Google and read a couple things and know enough to give their opinion on a subject.
0: Just like I did with milk. Um,
1: kind, <laughs> oh, did you Google that? <laughs> I could go into now, the research I, I on this, which is mil- fascinating.
0: I, I, well, inflation is a big part of the, the world we live in today. So I'm always tracking the CPI numbers and I track milk and cookies because there's a line item for sweets <laughs> and then and there's a line item for dairy. So I always do like the milk and cookies inflation. Anyway, keep going.
1: <laughs> so... You know, this happens sometimes when, like, let's say you're talking to a friend and they mention something you've never heard of before. Some people will, like, really quickly be searching it on their phone so that they can then come back and go, Oh, yeah, so I think that blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. People think that reading a couple paragraphs of an article on merit pay for teachers makes them an expert enough to give their opinion on these things. But the fact of the matter is, is that it erodes trust. And the reason it does that is because we know deep in our subconscious, that other people cannot know a lot about everything. That's impossible. And when they pretend to, when they have a so-called educated opinion on everything, we subconsciously know that some of that is BS. Ooh. We just don't know which part.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: And so over time that will really erode trust when you're talking to other the, people, so stop The it. expert
0: on e- everything, we know inherently as humans that that's, they're full of shit, is what you're saying.
1: Yes. Yes. and And so are we. Come on. We've given opinions on stuff that we had no right giving an opinion on. I'll give you an example. When they were studying confirmation bias, a group of scientists brought in a group of people and they said, okay, what do you think we should do about the war in Ukraine? And everybody gave their opinion and they said, okay, here's a map of Europe, point to Ukraine. And the worse their geography was, and the average was off by eighteen hundred miles.
0: It's a half a US or more than half.
1: Their worse their geography was, the more likely they were to recommend military
0: intervention. Man. (laughs) This is a recent study, obviously. Holy cow. So that
1: that actually was I think from like 2014 or 2015 the original when the U- Russia um and took over Crimea. Crimea
0: annex Crimea. Oh that is scary Celeste. It's scary. But again it also goes back to we're going beyond just how to converse being a good communicator is also about being honest, uh, the part of it is about, I guess, being honest with our with who we're communicating with. Essentially, that's what that's yeah, what that's that is.
1: how you grow trust, yeah. right? is is being honest, that people can pretty much take you at your word. That's like the study of rhetoric that you have to make an honest argument, right? That's one of the very first principles of rhetoric. It's the same as true in conversation,
0: which really dovetails into the next one, which is equating your experience with others. I feel like this is almost disingenuous sometimes. Which is the, oh, well, I, you, you hear about, you hear a story and then you go right into, well, <laughs> my aunt had, I had some of it. Don't equate your experience with theirs. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, and this is specific to um, situations where someone's talking about pain or struggle. Obviously, if they say, hey, I saw the new Top Gun movie and you say, me too, I don't care about that. But if somebody says, hey, my dog died, and you say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. My dog died two years ago, it was terrible, it took me forever to get over it, it's so awful. And the worst thing that you can say, which is I know how you feel, because you don't. I mean, we even know this neurologically, when, some, when you experience pain, immediately, your brain begins softening the memory of that pain. For obvious reasons, we wouldn't be functional if we could remember that. Yeah you know, years from now. But what that means is a couple years after losing your dog, you don't actually remember anymore. How hard it was. What that felt like.
0: Yeah. What are we supposed to do? then? that's a really, I think that's a hard one. Uh, Think about uh, families telling you, oh, my mom has, or not my mother, but a family member with dementia and it's sad and you hear the story and it's just Brutal what should you say as opposed to I know how you feel or I I go
1: so we think that sharing a similar story is expressing empathy and we know that it is not okay on their end that is not interpreted as empathy it's interpreted as pulling the spotlight to you the better thing to do you know oftentimes that impulse is born out of the fact that we don't know what to say Mm -hmm. and that's okay they don't need you to say anything in most cases, the reason they're sharing this with you is because they need to share it. They need to articulate it. Like if they've lost someone, if their father died or something, they want to tell you about their dad. They want to tell you what they've lost. So if someone says, I, my dog died, I, I will ask them questions. Oh, what was your dog like? What did they look like? What was their personality you know, they sound that they sound really mischievous. Were they in trouble all the time? Did they steal food? Ask them about the, what they've lost. Ask them if there's anything that they, they need. I don't know what to say. That's awful. What do you need? How could I help? All of those things are totally okay. But when you don't know what to say, it's all right not to say anything.
0: I think that's very constructive. I do wonder about that. When, if you think about what we very often are dealing with families and that are kind of baby boomer. And then that generation is, has really the parents are much older. You're hearing rough stuff all the time. And I think it's really helpful for you to talk through with me because those conversations are tough. And I think that's really helpful. Uh, uh, Don't equate your experience with theirs.
2: Hey y'all it's Mallory Boggs, the producer for the retire sooner podcast. From an investment standpoint, the world is changing. We've gone from no inflation to hyperinflation, zero interest rates to much higher interest rates. All of this changes the dynamics for stocks and bonds. So the question for you, are your retirement accounts ready for it? Have you adapted your investments for these major shifts? Do you know what kind of income your 401k account is going to pay you in retirement? If not, maybe it's time for a new perspective. The Retire Sooner team is here to help. If you're ready to talk, reach out to our team, and we'll help you take a closer look at how you can generate income in retirement and protect yourself from inflation. We'd love to hear from you. Again, find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S dot com.
0: And then the next is trying to repeat yourself. What's wrong with repeating? I thought you have to hear something seven times to have it sink in. So if you
1: repeat it seven times, the person saying the information will remember it. (laughs) The person hearing it will not. (laughs) So let me give you an example, because as a single parent for most of my adult life, I truly believed I needed to keep hammering away at stuff to make my kid remember. I'd be like, hey, don't forget to take out the trash after dinner. Hey, uh, you know, it's almost time for bed. Don't forget the trash. You know, I thought I was helping. But what ends up happening is, especially if you're the kind of person who repeats all the time, they learn that you do that. And subconsciously, they they don't listen to you because they know you're going to say it again.
0: Whoa, that is making a wave in our house. That's going to make a wave. I'm going to talk to, we're going to talk about that in my house.
1: And especially eventually, they don't even stop listening after the second iteration. They'll stop listening at the first one because again, they know it will be repeated. So, you know, if you think about it, Colin Powell, do you think he was repeating his orders? He was not. You need to say it once. And I did cold Turkey with my son. Basically I, one weekend I said, Hey, (laughs) <laughs> I, I On a Thursday, I took your car into the shop. It's not going to be back until you know Saturday afternoon or something. And then I didn't say it again. <laughs> and so he's like, hey, I have to go to work. Where's my car? <laughs> I was like, I told you. You didn't listen to me. So that was rough. Um, that was a rough way to do it. I don't recommend Why it. Why didn't you tell um, me three
0: times, Mom? Why didn't you tell me five exactly. times, Mom? You usually tell me eight times, Mom.
1: He didn't even register that I'd said it. That's how habitual it was for his brain to just tune it out
0: so (laughs) okay and then how long did that training take to kick in
1: i'm gonna say it took probably like three months
0: it's a long time i thought you were gonna say never it was a long time (laughs) never
1: (laughs) no no it did it did yeah eventually it just took took a while i wasn't always great about you know i was in such a habit of repeating stuff so it was a learning... So how old
0: is, how old is, is your... You have w- w- one?
1: He's 23 now. Oh, yeah. he's
0: a grown-up. Mm-hmm. This statistic blows me away. 52% of 18 to 29-year-olds still live with a parent or live at home.
1: Oh, my son is still in Atlanta, actually. He graduates from college this fall. And he's um, probably going yeah, yeah, to come a lot. live with
0: you afterwards or maybe...
1: Yeah, until he gets it unless he, you know, lands on a job that's gonna help him support himself. But look at it look at it this way though, Wes. It's only been very recently that we ever expected young people to leave the house. For the vast majority of our history, they never expected an eighteen or nineteen year old to be able to go and live on their home. We've had multi-generational families for most of our history. Like that's an extremely recent idea. And as far as I'm concerned, it can die. Like it's a terribly inefficient way to live.
0: You know, it's funny. The um, I, I think about the European culture or maybe it's funny you do the retro report. I, My prediction going into the pandemic or coming out of it was that we were going to go back to a, a 1950s style retro economy, meaning that like you had to wait. Like if you wanted something fixed, like it wasn't going to happen that day. It was like it might take a month. Yeah. Or if you want to get a car, it might take like a couple months, kind of like it was back, as my kids would say, back in the day. Yeah. And I did a whole radio show on the retro. We're going to go back to a 1950s happy days. It's going to take a while, like on demand. We're so used to on demand. And yeah. it's almost as though the 50s and the, maybe it was the 60s, the baby boomers as growing up, they got so fiercely independent. It's like, oh, you got to get out of the house. And to your point, that's pretty recent. Right, you go back a hundred years, it wasn't like that. But it's like kind not of the all. baby boomer yeah. generation was. Like, oh, I got my permit at fifteen. I'm driving at fifteen and a half. I'm out of the house by seventeen point five.
1: There's a lot of things that really only applied or were were rational for the baby boomers, like they were a sort of one off generation. I'm Gen X, but the baby boomers,
0: I'm an, I'm an Xer. Were, yeah, they,
1: there's not a lot. That applies to other generations. The baby boomers keep trying to make those rules apply to other generations, <laughs> but they just don't.
0: So they're the pig moving through the python, is my name. Of, of yes. course, that's the generational demographic trend. Staying out of the weeds in a conversation, I feel like I get that one.
1: Yeah, you get that one. I mean, this is just put, put simply. Remember, I was talking about how our running monologue, uh, can it get in our way when we're listening it also get in your way when we're talking and the way that this comes across is i'll say like you'll say oh we're we're going to venice this year and i'll say oh my god you're going to love venice you know we went to venice in uh 2012 no you know what it would have been 2013 (laughs) no you know what it was 2014 because i just bought the subaru and oh you know what no because it had to have been before we got the car like That may be going on in your head, but again, you don't need to say it. (laughs) So,
0: (laughs) nobody. I need a big sign. Nobody cares. Nobody cares cares about your. What year it was?
1: (laughs) What the name of your doctor was? No one. No one cares.
0: Be brief. Now, be brief. I. Yes. Brief. Is that? Is that? We need to be brief.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you lose people's attention in about forty-five seconds. I mean, and you're in audio, you know how quickly forty five seconds goes by. Yeah. Um, if you get to the one minute mark, it's a full red light. So at thirty seconds you're still at a green light, forty five seconds you're at yellow, and by the time you get to a minute, it's red.
0: When you're talking about one on one conversation, if you if if one yes. side is talking for anywhere approaching forty five, that is a that's not a good conversation. No.
1: I mean, look, look yeah, at it this way. I hadn't thought
0: about that, the time interactions.
1: You know, we think, like, if you watch kids' programming, you have kids?
0: Four of them. And by the way, were you on Sesame Street? I was not. I would love to have been on Sesame Street, but no. Okay. Um, I thought, I I read an article around you, and there was something about Sesame Street and you, and I was like, was Celeste on Sesame Street?
1: I was not. I've interviewed a lot of people who were on Sesame Street. Got it. Okay. But, you know, you've watched a lot of kids' programming like a lot of parents have. And you'll watch kids program and you realize how engaging it is, right? Like, Elmo will come out and go, what do you think I should do today? Oh, yeah, maybe I could go to the park. Wait, should I go to the park? Like, the kids are constantly talking back and forth with the TV. We think that's how kids learn. That's just how humans learn. Like, you have to keep people engaged, which means you have to give them a chance To speak. Otherwise, you lose them and you lose them very, very quickly. So be brief because, you know, time is flying, man. You got to give them a chance to come in. I try to get people to think about conversations like a game of catch. A, you can't throw more times than you catch. And B, it's not fun if one person is just hucking the ball down the field constantly. Yeah.
0: It's like a game of catch. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I'd love to know the average conversational turnaround time on Sesame Street or a healthy, engaging child's program. I wonder if it's like eight seconds, 12 seconds, 20 seconds. It's probably, it's definitely not 45.
1: Yeah, it's, it's quick. I mean, I do think adults have a longer attention span than that, but some people don't. I mean, I'm sure you've talked to them where you can see their eyes glaze over after 15 seconds. Like, some people don't, so...
0: It's funny when we start talking about children's programming. I have four boys. My, I still have a six-year-old, so my, I have a 15, 12, 10, 6, So they they still are in that mode of. I immediately think of Paw Patrol. I don't know if you you caught that phase. Did they have that when your son? They was did young? not.
1: I, yeah, they did not. We had Paw like Patrol, Blue's Clues. Paw Patrol and, yeah. be
0: there on the double. It's five little pups that are all kind of their own little specialty yeah it's pretty good i i would say it's pretty it's like one of my favorite least favorite and then the final piece of the equation here is the hardest one is the one that i skipped that this one's just hard and it kind of goes back to the just being present and not you having your iphone on and we know we're supposed to do this one but we just it's hard what's this last one
1: and it's kind of what all the other ones are about too is listening and I, I will say this to make people feel better about it. It's always been hard for us. You know, the, the, the seminal researcher in the area of listening is a guy named Ralph Nichols. And he was doing his research in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And at the end of his decades-long career, his takeaway was, you know, human beings just don't listen very well. We have to work at it. Um, and in our age of distraction, we don't put the work into it. So that that's what I'll say. It's not just, just your technology that's preventing you from listening. And it's also not that kind of thing where somebody's gonna listen to this podcast and be like, okay, from now on, I'm gonna be a good listener. Nope, it's gonna be like the gym. Like you gotta keep at it. It's a discipline. And there'll be times when you don't have the focus, when your brain is not in the space it needs to be in in order to listen well. And then it's okay to walk away from a conversation. But the rest of the time, you need to give it the focus and the attention and the energy that it requires.
0: Does all of this go back to, uh, I wanted to ask about disagreements and we kind of live in the most polarized, I don't know, it, it feels like it's the most polarized we've ever been. Maybe over the course of history, you would find times where we're more bifurcated maybe than ever. Is, it feels like we're still at the height of that. Is there a better way to speak to one another when we're disagreeing?
1: So first of all, you have to have the conversation. If you avoid any conversation that's at all um, fraught, uh, it it gets you where we are, which is that by not talking about things like politics and religion, uh, we are incredibly ignorant about anybody's politics or written religion except for our own. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing is you have to have the conversation. The second one is, is that the one step that it is don't try to educate people that's gonna serve you really well. You know, you are not going to change somebody's mind over the course of your conversation. That's not going to happen. So stop going into conversations as though that's a possible outcome.
0: It's not possible, yeah.
1: Not possible. And so therefore, if you go into that conversation instead saying, look, they really disagree with me, I'm I'm gonna leave, I won't leave this conversation until I've learned something about their position and why they think the way they do. That you can achieve every single time.
0: So if we think about, and I think about productivity, trying to multitask, that hurts us, our brain. And maybe the thought around it is that we feel as though the world has gotten so fast paced and Moore's law of microchips get, semiconductors get twice as fast every couple of years. And it's like, we're trying to keep up. And it's almost as though the world is faster than humans. So our iPhones are kind of our training wheels to keep us going faster and faster and faster. But you also wrote a book about doing nothing. And yeah. I love the word under. I love the, the thought of under living. <laughs> it, it's one of your thoughts on we're overworking, we're overdoing, but we are under living. Tell me about the research for this book and tell me about doing nothing. Cause I have, we have some real trouble in that category.
1: We do, but you know, part of the the point of that book was to sort of trace our humanness. What are the things that we need in order to be happy and healthy? What does a human being need? Right? What's the care and feeding of a human being? And work isn't one of them.
0: It is not one of them.
1: It is not. If I were to give you 10 million dollars tomorrow and you stopped working, you would be perfectly happy and healthy for the rest of your life.
0: You could be fine. Well, as long as you have- You would be fine. Yeah.
1: The number one need that we have after food, shelter, and water is belonging. Work is not an inherent need. And so we've structured our entire lives around putting work as our number one priority. And that's really backwards. The work is, we're only supposed to be just enough work to enable us to live a happy and healthy life. That's all we're supposed to do. But we have made work the focus of our lives, the purpose of our lives. And that's backwards. It was always destined to to be unsustainable and unhealthy.
0: The thought of belonging is something that, you know, maybe that's a word I've underused with, you can retire sooner than you think. And my latest book is called, what the happiest retirees know. and And we talk about money and, money in relationship to happiness. And there's this plateau effect, but besides the money side of the equation, you get to this thought of socialization. There's a chapter I have about faith and it's not about faith so much as it is about belonging to a church and having some sort of social epicenter. And I I think it's an interesting word, this thought of belonging. So food, shelter, and then we have that, that is that fundamental of a need is belonging, Celeste, because that's that's a word I, I've, I've been underusing, is belonging. Why is that? What is the belonging, or is that also a kind of a sense of purpose, or it's a mixed with socialization? I, it's very interesting.
1: Belonging is an inherent need for human beings because our survival has always depended on community. Um, we like to use the term lone wolf as though that's something admirable, but the truth is that a, a real lone wolf dies, and they generally die of mange. um human beings need one another to survive that is just the truth belonging is the feeling that we belong in a certain place with a certain group of people the feeling that we are part of a community and that's not a soft skill that is a survival skill we have to stop treating belonging as though it's icing on the cake no it's much more important than almost anything else that we do. Like I said, it's the number one most important need after food, shelter, and water. So belonging is a the difference between life and death for our species. It always has been and it will always be.
0: And it's not just icing on the cake and we're gonna let that be the icing on the cake here today. God bless you. Thank you, Celeste, so much for taking a full hour, continued success with everything, continue to sell Thank some books, so lots of books. <laughs> And uh, thanks for taking the time out here for the Retire Sooner podcast.
1: I really appreciate it. Good luck with the podcast.
0: Take care.
2: Hey, y'all. This is Mallory with the Retire Sooner team. Please be sure to rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. If you have any questions, you can find us at westmoss.com. That's W-E-S-M-O-S-S dot com. You can also follow us on Instagram and YouTube. You'll find us under the handle Retire Sooner podcast. And now for our show's disclosure. information.